Mark Deborah always finds fresh ways to make me nervous when he does introductions. I mean, this poor unsuspecting brother standing here holding a 900-pound ESV Bible, and Mark is like, who will guess his weight? <laughs> like, Please, Lord, don't let him guess my weight. Don't let him guess my weight. Don't let him guess my weight. I like my weight. I consider it reserves. And that's important in my house nowadays because they're taking stuff out my food. I mean, they're just not reducing quantities. They're taking stuff out of it, like gluten. I like that swelling feeling I get when I eat food. And then they try to sneak other stuff in. My wife made me a smoothie the other day, and I like smoothies, you know, real smoothies. This one was green. She said, it's got kale in it. Kale's a superfood. Right. <laughs> Collard greens with a little hot sauce, that's a superfood. <laughs> Kale's a superfood. You know, and I'm finding out all kinds of stuff. You know, I've started this campaign to inform Americans of their dietary rights. It's just a lot of false advertisement out there, like whole milk. That's only like 3% fat. I want the rest of my fat in my milk. Whole milk. You know, and almond milk? I do too, I used to. But you know, I used to drink almond milk, Danny, and I was thinking, how many almonds does it take to make a glass of milk? <laughs> there are no almonds in it. It's just water with ground up dust. And I had been putting that stuff on my Fruit Loops. It was then I decided something had to be done. So join me in telling Americans everywhere about their dietary rights. We should continue to be the heaviest people on the earth. <laughs> Let's pray. Let's pray. <laughs> Father, you're the one who gives laughter. For you're the one who gives your love so freely in Christ your Son. You're the one who gives us fresh mercies each day. You're the one who makes your sun and the rain to shine and to fall upon the righteous and the unrighteous alike. You are just good. And in your presence is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures for evermore, forevermore. And your kingdom is so wonderful that we should sell all and buy that field and purchase that pearl for joy. Oh, Lord, we thank you for joy. If you did not exist, there would be no source of joy, no lasting joy. If you did not exist, there would be no happiness that conquers our sorrow. If you did not exist, there'd be no hope beyond this life, and we would be most miserable. We praise you, for you are the 
always existing one whose presence is light and life and glory and joy. Would you meet with us tonight in your holy word? Would you speak to us? Would you, Lord, overcome a little fatigue that some of us may be feeling or a little distraction or just dullness of soul? Would you pierce the ears to break through the din that comes from the noise of this world that we might hear your voice and as your sheep follow you. Help us to hear, O Lord. Help us to hear you speak, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Can I read something to you? I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> this is from the book, The Warmth of Other Suns. I'm frequently asked the question, Thabiti, what books on African-American history and the African-American experience would you recommend? And that's a hard question to answer because there's so many. It's such a rich and long history and experience. But if I could put one book in your hand tonight, it would be this excellently written book called The Warmth of Other Suns. In there, the writer tells this story. In the summer of 1932, the church actually split into two rival factions as to who should be the pastor. One side was backing the Reverend W.W. Hill, an old school preacher who had just been ousted. The other was supporting Professor Foster, a starched man with a standoffish wife and brilliant children whom some people saw as having enough influence as it was, seeing as how he already ran the school. The church grew so divided that people were no longer speaking. Enemy lines were drawn. The church had to shut down for two whole months. The authorities in Monroe took away the keys. The church reopened the first Sunday in September 1932, along with the wounds and hostilities that were no closer to healing than the day the church was shuttered. That morning, Sunday school had barely begun when there arose a contention between the two factions as to who was in charge of the church, the Chicago Defender reported. There was a question as to whether the apparent victor, Professor Foster, should speak. The Hill people saying it was perhaps best that he not. The anti-heel faction urging him to go forward. Professor Foster, accustomed to running things, he arose and stood stiff and pious and was reading Bible scripture. When four women walked up to the pulpit and demanded he stop preaching, as if to suggest he had no right to be taken over as he had. It was an outrageous, unheard of disruption, practically blasphemous, and the church broke into an uproar. Several men rushed the pulpit and began fighting. A deacon backed out of the door, hitting back at those who pursued him and falling down in the street. A parishioner named James Dugans, who was either a supporter of Professor Foster or merely enraged at the show of disrespect, picked up a chair, drew a pistol, and started shooting. A bullet struck a woman named Patsy Daniels in the stomach. Incensed, 
Her father ran to a house next door and got a pistol of his own. The father came back to a fight that had now spilled out to the front of the church. When the first gunman, Dugans, saw the woman's now armed father, he shot him in the chest. The bleeding father continued firing as he fell, killing Dugans and wounding three other parishioners. Patsy Daniels died from her wounds. In all, as many as seven people were left wounded, including the dead woman's father. Professor Foster and his family managed to escape unharmed, physically in any case. The Monroe police again had to take the keys of the church. Until the congregation could settle its dispute, the doors of the church were securely nailed up, the Atlanta Daily World reported. I'm guessing now your church has no problems. Here's a church that needed discipline of every kind. The formative discipline of the preaching of God's word. And surely by the time you get to a scene like this, it's clear that someone somewhere along the way should have received the corrective discipline. It's an interesting sentence here. I don't think the writer of this book is a Christian. At least she's not writing as a Christian. But this sentence, did you hear it? The Monroe police again had to take the keys of the church. Brings to mind the keys of the kingdom, didn't it? But surely they were not exercising those keys. And we look at a church like this and we think of its problems and and yeah, maybe it puts the challenges of our own church situation to a a slightly better light or maybe even a, 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 a much better light. But it also highlights for us why we want to embrace the practice of discipline and apply the instruction of God's word with the hope that God might be pleased to bless it to our churches in incalculable ways. When does discipline work? If Americans have a philosophy, it is pragmatism. Do what works. But what works when it comes to obeying God's word in the correction of erring people of God. That's what I want us to consider as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 23, and as we go down to chapter 2, um, verse 11. I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 23, down to chapter 2, verse 11. And as we look at this text, I want us to hang our thoughts on two points. The first point comes from chapter 1, verse 23, down to verse 4 of chapter 2. And very simply, it's this. Discipline works when a church feels. When a church feels. The second point is from verse 5 to 11 of chapter 2, and it simply is this. Discipline works when a church forgives. When a church forgives. I pray that as we consider God's word, he might give us a a good sense of what should be our heart's affections as we approach this topic and approach this practice, and, and what should be our hope on the other side of applying God's word. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 23. The apostle Paul writes there, but I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. 
for I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. In his first letter to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul insisted that the Corinthians address a number of matters in their midst, one of which, is, which Danny just preached so wonderfully for us, was in 1 Corinthians 5, the, the matter of sexual immorality, where a man had his father's wife. And, and the church, you'll recall, was, was proud. They rejoiced in their liberality, that they had such a man in their number, and, and they were so gracious and so loving and so kind that, in fact, they set aside the immorality to embrace this man as a member. They were proud when this was something that not even pagans would have endorsed. Paul told them they should have been ashamed, and that when they next met, they would have put this man out of their fellowship, hand him over to Satan so that he would learn not to sin and so that his soul might be saved on the day of Christ. And the apostle had written to them in strong terms, so 1 Corinthians 4, 21, which Dr. A can also reference, Paul writes there, what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Now don't let the eloquence of the scripture cause you to miss what Paul is saying. You all have said it to your children. Don't make me come down there. Paul was being bold towards them. And perhaps the apostle knows that his letter landed like a hammer. Because you see what he writes there in chapter 1, verse 23 of, of 2 Corinthians? I call God to witness against me. He invokes the all-seeing, all-knowing, perfect judge of the universe to, to confirm what he now is about to say, lest he be misunderstood. He says, it was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. And perhaps Paul knew something about the state of his own heart and his own thinking when he had written in 1 Corinthians 4.21, shall I come to you with a rod? And perhaps on further reflection, he thought to himself, you know what, I'd better not go down there like this. It's an interesting object lesson. 
And when we come to thinking about correcting God's people, we had better be wary of what's in our own hearts. If you lead a congregation as a pastor or an elder or a deacon, if you have any responsibility for the oversight of God's people, there is something that happens in the process of shepherding. Your heart gets wound up together with them. And this is all over this text, so Paul could say, you know, his joy goes up as their joy goes up. And if he injures them, if he causes them pain, who's left now to to cause him to rejoice? And even a little bit later, he says, I know that if I was rejoicing, then then that would be your joy too. He's, He's talking about this kind of symbiosis that's happened between them. This blending of their lives and their hearts and their hopes. And where there's present any kind of love among God's shepherds for God's people, the heart is involved. But it's deceptive. Knowledge of the human heart lies beyond our comprehension. It it is, in fact, one of the incommunicable attributes of God. Knowledge of the heart. And so there's a cautionary tale here as we approach this, thinking about what works with regard to church discipline. One of the things that does not work is just acting upon your heart unguarded. And so Paul says, I I decided to refrain from coming because I wanted to spare you. I didn't want to harm you. I didn't want to be too harsh. It makes it clear that only a feeling church should practice discipline. Only a church that feels and feels appropriately. Well, what should be felt as we approach this practice? I think in verse 24, we begin to see a number of things that the apostle himself was feeling or aspiring to that that should be stamped on our hearts as well. See there in verse 24, the first thing is humility. Not that we lord it over your faith. It's possible that cases of discipline present the power hungry or the power drunk an opportunity to lord it over the church. Men may become insistent on compliance, offended that they dare disobey the elders, loud about the necessity of submitting to authority, all of which can be reflected in the scriptures, taught plainly in the scriptures in many respects, but could be so much cover for someone who just really wants to put their thumb on somebody's neck. And so Paul clarifies, not that we lorded over your faith. And and you hear the echo of Jesus, don't you? From Matthew's gospel, Matthew 20, verses 25 to 28, where he says to his disciples there, listen, the Gentiles, you know what the Gentiles leaders do? They, they lord it over people. Not so with you. And whatever leadership looks like in the Christian church, it doesn't look like a bunch of men walking around as lords. Paul has given us that example. I don't lord it over your faith. That's not the motive behind discipline. He's humbling himself, I think, in this phrase. Because to forget humility is to forget the gospel. 
We should practice discipline when we are ready to do as Philippians 2.3 says, ready to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but when we're ready in humility to count others more significant than ourselves. And so we want that in our hearts toward our people that they are, though they're not leaders in the church perhaps, or though they hold no prominent position in the church perhaps, perhaps they are rather meager in means, but we regard them more highly than we do ourselves. And our approach to them is not as lords, but as servants. Just as Christ's approach to us wasn't to come in power and to crush us, But as Philippians 2 goes on to say, was to make himself of no reputation, to take upon himself the form of a servant, to become obedient, even obedient to the point of death on a cross. So the practice of discipline should have some element of dying for our people in it, of humbling ourselves and not lording it over them. Well, there's a second thing that Paul shows up, shows for us here, and that's, that's not only this attitude or this, this humility, but, but also a, a cooperation in the practice of discipline. There's a spirit of, of mutuality between the person caught in the sin and the church. So Paul writes, he continues in verse 24, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you. We work with you. This is not an adversarial process. This is not the, the elders uh, arraigning themselves against someone as, a, as an enemy combatant. This is the shepherd trying to find a lost sheep. This is the shepherd trying to repair fences in the pasture so that the people can feed in safety from good grass. There is a working together here. If we feel like we are against the sinner, we feel like we are opposed to the brother or the sister, that's a reason for us to sort of stop, to slow down, to begin a concert of prayer, to tarry in prayer until the Lord would, would help us to understand that the ones he's purchased with his own blood are not to be conquered, but to be worked with, to be shepherded, to be nursed alone. Watch that feeling of not being cooperative, of not seeing ourselves together with them in their struggle for progress in the spiritual life. And and that feeling of opposition, it, it flares up rather easily, doesn't it? I mean, all it takes is for someone to misrepresent you, to start a rumor, to scandalize the pastor or the elder a little bit, and there's something in us that that begins to withdraw affection, begins to shrink back and very naturally gets defensive, and and not just defensive in a self-protective way, but but sometimes in a hostile way. We can get passive-aggressive when we see them in the congregation, cold shoulders and silent treatments. Accusations fly, tempers flare, the church and the one in sin learn to, well, they learn to fight 
even if the fighting is done quietly and without words. But the scripture envisions discipline happening in a context where at least the leaders like Paul understand that there is to be a cooperative spirit working together with the person ensnared. That we are not working against erring sheep, but with them. And what are we working for? It's the third thing. It's joy. We work with you for your joy. For you stand firm in the faith. And those two things go together. Uh, A saint standing firm in the faith and and flowering, being rooted deep in the soil of faith. That that, that saint will, will grow up and spring up into a joyous flower. What we're aiming for is their best, deepest, lasting joy, which is found in their progress in Christ and their communion with Him. We want to restore them to Christ, not merely to bring them into compliance with the leadership of the church, but we want to restore them in Christ for the joy of their souls and for our joy as shepherds, seeing them walk in the truth. And this is why Paul didn't want to hurt them. He didn't want to make that painful visit. So look down with me, chapter two, verse three, or excuse me, chapter two, verses one to three. See what the apostle writes there? For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. Why? For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice, for I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. You see, it's just back to the ways in which their joy is intertwined, braided like a child's hair. He doesn't want to hurt them because that would bring him no joy. There's something wrong in the, in the pastor's heart if they get joy out of causing their people pain. That's not the Bible's idea of discipline. The infliction of suffering on the sheep of God. As Mark put it earlier, we don't beat the sheep, we feed the sheep. And you see how here Paul says, I didn't want to wound you, I didn't want to cause you pain because then you wouldn't bring me joy. But he, but he goes on and sort of flips the coin a little bit in verse 3. I wrote, as I did, I wrote so sternly, I wrote so severely, so, so plainly, so that when I came I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. In other words, there are two kinds of pain in this text. as the improper pain of a man inflicting pain punishment on sheep, but there is the proper wounding of conscience, the blows of a friend, the opening of the scripture to the people of God who are in error and who by that pain are changed and spring up into joy. And That's what Paul wanted to see when he got there, that that letter had caused them repentance and that that repentance would work for their joy and his joy in Christ. He understands that the pastor's joy rises and falls with the joy of his people to some extent. His pain rises and falls with the joy of his people. 
And this would have been natural thinking to Paul who thinks so much about our union with Christ. That we mourn with those who mourn, we suffer with those who suffer, we rejoice with those who rejoice, that there's this deep empathy in the body of Christ, so much so that Paul could say that, that care for all the churches was always crushing on him every day. There's this deep empathy. Such that if one part of the body hurts, the whole body hurts with it. And he understood something about pastoral ministry. That I trust all of you brothers here who have been called to serve out of a good heart, that you understand too. That in our best moments, our people are our joy. Paul often wrote that way. He wrote of both the Philippians and the Thessalonians that they were his joy and his crown. Or as one translation put it, the, the crown of his rejoicing. We meant to live with our people in such a way that, well, maybe as an analogy like our children. We see them and there's this warmth of affection. There's this gladness of heart. There's this, I pray, proper pride that we derive from our people. And all of their faults and failings and all of their stumblings and, and all of their glories and triumphs and all of their good deeds, there's something about living with the people of God as an under-shepherd of God that, that just gives the soul gladness. And discipline is not meant to overturn that, it's meant to preserve it. My brother was right in the earlier talk, there, there's very little joy in dealing with a man's sin, but there's great joy in going through it with him to the other side. And discipline is meant to preserve our joy with our people. John Calvin put it this way. Now Paul says that he has such a fellow feeling with the Corinthians that he cannot feel joyful unless he sees them happy. Nay more, he declares that they were the source and the authors of his joy, which they could not be if they themselves were sorrowful. If this disposition prevails in pastors, it will be the best restraint to keep them back from alarming with terrors those minds which they ought rather to have encouraged by means of a cheerful affability. But from this arises an excessively morose harshness so that we do not rejoice in the welfare of the church as we're becoming. You see what he's saying? If our people's progress is in joy, is our heart's motivation, that very desire for joy will be a certain kind of handbrake that, that's pulled instinctively against rushing without breaks into a hasty discipline. And Paul says there ought to be joy in this. We're not ready to practice discipline until we cultivate humility, until we cultivate a cooperative spirit with our people, until we work together with them for joy. And we're not ready to practice discipline until we feel love. Notice that in verse 4 of chapter 2. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know what? The abundant love I have for you. 
It's interesting to me that Paul seeks to spare the Corinthians pain from his visit. But all the while, Paul himself is eating up pain over them. Did you notice that? He was writing out of affliction and anguish and many tears. To quote Calvin again, Calvin says, it is the part of a pious pastor to weep within himself before he calls upon others to weep, to feel tortured in silent musings before he shows a token of displeasure, and to keep within his own breast more grief than he causes to others. And so the pastor becomes a kind of Pac-Man, eating up this grief, swallowing this sorrow, holding it within himself that he might spare his people undue sorrow and harsh treatment. And some of you brothers know as pastors how many nights you have wept for people over things they seem to have no tears for. How you have pled with God for mercy when they seem committed to destruction. You, you know what disappointments have kept you up at night, what fears have kept you praying, what sorrows have kept you crying, and the pastor's wife know, many, know how many times she has tried to soothe and encourage and lend a shoulder. You, you know this. I hope you know this. Calvin calls it a natural part of the, pa the pious pastor's ministry. Paul models it for us here in these verses. And if such affliction and anguish and tears are lacking, I fear we have not yet grown feeling enough to really perform the pastoral ministry. One of the qualifications for the ministry is the ability to weep. I think there's something in Paul's words of the, of the psalmist's attitude when a psalmist writes in Psalm 119, 136, my eyes shed streams of tears because the people do not keep your law. Do we feel that? Do we love God's people and love God's word enough that the people's disobedience to the word causes us to cry streams of tears? To quote Calvin one more time, he says, these tears in a man that is brave and magnanimous are a token of intense grief. These are manly tears. These are tears cried by the kind of men who can face grief, who will face it for his people. We're not ready to practice discipline until there is love that results in weeping for our churches. Discipline won't work absent humility and cooperation and joy and love. And when these qualities are present, don't they create the, the softest pillow on which the unrepentant sinner may lay their head? Don't, don't they create the, the sweetest context in which to talk about the deepest pains and the, and the strongest sorrows? 
When these things are, are present, a, a humbling of ourselves, to consider even the one who is rebellious against Christ better than ourselves, and to work with them for their joy, and to, and to call them to joy, and to, and to do that in expressions of love, sometimes weeping with them and for them, when that happens, we have the best chance of melting the hard heart, of softening the stiff neck, of changing the rebellious mind. That's when discipline works. And we want that kind of context because we don't want repentance to be more difficult than it has to be. I mean, a man to change his mind and turn his heart against himself won't happen apart from the work of God's Spirit and a considerable amount of gouging out the eye and cutting off the arm, which will feel to them like great pain, just as the images suggest. That's hard to turn. But then when you have to turn not only against your own heart, but the heart of the entire church, which isn't humble towards you, which isn't cooperative with you, which isn't joyful or loving, well, that's, that's two, three, five, ten, a hundred times more difficult. Well, how sweet it is to know that when you need to turn, you're going to be turning back into loving arms. That's the context we want for our discipline. That's where the practice of discipline works. Even if the sinner doesn't turn. For we will have been fulfilling that great commandment to love our brothers, yes? So we love ourselves. So, make that a checklist. Ask yourself, church, Ask yourself, pastoral team, elders, members, are we humble enough to do this? Are we cooperative enough to do this? Are we joy-seeking people enough to do this? Do we have the love of Christ to do this? Church discipline works when your church feels the right things. But number two, discipline works when your church forgives. When your church forgives. One of the pitfalls when congregations embrace the responsibility of discipline is the temptation to be severe. You know, having first mustered up the courage to do this, and how many of you know who recently began this practice, or, or maybe you're on the precipice of some case and bring it before the congregation, how many of you know that part of what you have to muster is courage? And here's what happens sometimes. You, you, you screw up enough courage, you get yourself together, you, you begin to steel your face against what you think might be hostile opposition, and, and you get over the hump, and you've paid some chips, you've lost a little skin, you've, 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 you've lost some flesh. The person for some season is unrepentant, and, and then over the course of time, there can grow up a kind of hardness in the heart. Because you've suffered too. And this person hadn't brought forth deeds in keeping with repentance, at least not to satisfy you. And you're, you're struggling with what repentance looks like. And, and though you wouldn't use these words, and though you wouldn't necessarily say, we set out to do this, you feel the bar rising as to what repentance looks like. And there's a harshness. And there is a resistance to forgiveness that can grow in the church, especially if the sin is hurtful to the church, to the reputation of the church, to the leaders of the church, to members in the church. 
we can sort of fall back on the law. They need to make restitution. They need to satisfy our just demands. When the gospel calls us to remember how much we have been forgiven and to likewise forgive. So verse 5, Paul points out that the Corinthians may be acting in some pain at this point. He writes, if anyone has caused pain, he's caused it not to me. Paul says, look, I'm good. But in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. Having to address this man's sin has been an injury to the body of Christ. And now the body of Christ is in some way fighting back against the sin too aggressively, like cancer cells eating away at the good cells in the body. And the Corinthians need to recognize some things. So look with me in verses 6 to 8. For such a one, the one who's caused the church pain, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Now, a Congregationalist looks at verse 6 and begins to salivate. You know, we see words like the majority, and then we turn and start picking on Lig, right? The majority of the members in the church had discharged this responsibility. And, and true enough, for discipline to have its redemptive effect, the entire congregation, whatever the polity, needs to understand and uphold the discipline. It's in the withdrawal of fellowship and the withdrawal of affirmation for the person's profession that the covenant community sort of gives discipline its, we pray, redemptive force. The Corinthians had obeyed Paul just as Paul had hoped in verse 9, but there was a danger of the majority becoming a mob. So, to quote one last time, John Calvin, the end of excommunication, so far as concerns the power of the offender, is this, that overpowered with a sense of his sin, He may be humbled in the sight of God and the church and may solicit pardon with sincere dislike and confession of guilt. The man who has been brought to this is now more in need of consolation than of severe reproof. Hence, if you continue to deal with him harshly, it will be not discipline, but cruel domineering. Hence, we must carefully guard against pressing them beyond this limit. For nothing is more dangerous than to give Satan a handle to tempt an offender to despair. And that's kind of the precipice the Corinthians are on. And this is where Paul wants to help them understand forgiveness as one of the great results of discipline and forgiveness as a way of working benefits in the life of the church. So let's talk about what this forgiveness looks like. Well, Paul writes, then you should have, you should turn to him, right? And, and in some measure, you should, you should forgive him and comfort him. And in verse 8, reaffirm your love for him. Those are the missing ingredients in their practice of discipline. So first of all, the church should forgive. What does that look like? I love the little tool that Peacemaker Ministries uses sometimes. It's called the Four Promises of Forgiveness. 
You ever had a situation where you've been in conflict with someone? Maybe there's been some deep hurt between you and them, and they've asked you for forgiveness, and you've genuinely been puzzled as to what that looks like and how to go about that. You know that it requires something more than saying, I forgive you, because the heart didn't always follow those words. And sometimes the heart follows those words for a little bit, and it turns back, doesn't it? You go from I forgive you to I remember you. And so we need to figure out what does is, what is forgiveness look like? And, and this little tool I've used in counseling, this little tool we use in other situations, and, and I found it particularly helpful, four promises that you're making in forgiving someone. And this could work in the context of discipline. Number one, you promise this, I will not dwell on this incident. The way the Bible puts this is love keeps no record of wrongs, right? I will not dwell on this incident. Number two, I will not bring this incident, bring up this incident again and use it against you. Not only will I not dwell on it, but I won't turn it into a weapon so that I can use it against you at some future point. You've seen this before, maybe in your own marriage or in your own relationships. You had some squabble and you have confessed and forgiven each other supposedly and two weeks later you have an entirely different argument. And one of the spouses says, usually the one with the longer hair, <laughs> that could be a guy. <laughs> but one of the spouses says, and you always do this, just like you did this thing last week and the week before that. And you remember when my mother visited us last Thanksgiving and you got this long laundry list of things you thought were done, right? And they come out like a big hammer, bang. Well, forgiveness says, I won't dwell on this, and I won't bring it up like a weapon. Number three, it promises I will not talk to others about this incident. If I've forgiven it, it's no longer a topic of conversation with other people. I'm not sort of spreading that tale and, and kindling strife between brethren. I'm not, I'm not sort of newsing about to people who had perhaps no knowledge of this the details and gossiping and slandering. That's not forgiveness. Forgiveness says, I won't talk to others about this. And number four, forgiveness says, I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. If I've forgiven it, then I'm committed to us moving forward in restored fellowship. And those same kinds of promises ought to be spoken by the church to the brother or sister who is now repentant and brought forth uh, deeds of repentance and is being restored to the fellowship of the church. What freedom it is to be able to walk before God's people with the conscience untroubled by our past sins and past guilt. This is the marvelous thing of the gospel. We walked that way before God. Not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done. And, and through faith in him, we have been clothed in his righteousness. And, and on the cross, he is, he's nailed our sins there and taken them away. And we, we bear them no more. This means, Christian, we walk before the holy God of the universe, the one who sees all and knows all, free from our sin and free from the guilt of sin. 
and free from the judgment that's coming against sin so that we have no doubts before God, our consciences are clear before God, we, we commune with God as his children, we come boldly to the throne of grace, we don't come scared, shrinking back, but as children forgiven and cleansed and clothed in the righteousness of Christ, we come boldly. That's what we want for people restored to the fellowship of the church. They come back into the doors among God's people boldly in freedom, knowing forgiveness, and that they bear their sins no more with Christ or with Christians. Isn't that wonderfully liberating? This is what discipline is to produce. Let me give you a second thing we see in the text here. There should be comfort then. The conscience isn't as easily soothed by words when we know the depths of our sins. You know, our words aren't magic mantra. So that just by saying, I forgive you, the, the person doesn't necessarily automatically feel forgiven. They need to be comforted. Paul is concerned that this person here, verse 7, may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. He, he genuinely regrets, regrets what he's done. He sees the, the ugliness of his sin and perhaps sees the, the reproach that's been brought upon Christ and upon the church, and, and those things grieve him most deeply. What does he need from the body of Christ? Not just forgiveness, but also comfort assurance that the, the grace of God abounds where his sin did abound. It much more abounds, that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that sinners alike, we have received grace from God and we go on in the grace of God. And, and brother, let me, let me assure you that our God has never lost a soul that he saved. He will keep you. He promises to keep you. And he promises to present you faultless before him. And we comfort each other with these words and with practical words of exhortation and practical ways of serving. So Paul could write again in Philippians 2, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love. And we have received that, haven't we? By that same thing, we comfort those who have likewise broken themselves in sin. Here's the third thing, the third ingredient. This guy's repentant. He should know the church's forgiveness. He should know the church's comfort. Number three, he should know the church's love. Verse eight, I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. How might the church do that? In the same way that the church at maybe a members meeting or at the Lord's Supper read this person out of the membership, announced this person's dismembering from the body, to at that same place, affirm their love, reunite with them at the body. Make the Lord's Supper where this person is restored a special supper where the church lays hands on this person or gathers with this person and prays with this person and rejoices again to, to come to the table together as one body. How would you affirm your love? With notes of encouragement, emails, texts, tweets. We love you. With acts of service, 
Maybe it's the kind of sin that's fractured a home. And so you would graciously babysit on a Friday night so that husband and wife can go out and begin to repair the breach. A million ways, small and great, public and private. Paul says here, reaffirm your love. That's interesting wording to me. It presumes that they have continued to love him. That they did genuinely love him before he was excommunicated. And that that love has continued resonant in their hearts and needs only fresh expression. May it be so that in our churches when we have to come to this unpleasant duty, that our love might be expressed in appropriate ways throughout the whole process and then reaffirmed with great joy when we receive again that brother from the far-off land who had been wasting their life in riotous living. This has two results as we close. Number one, the sinner's relief. Again, you see that there in verse 7. That they not be overwhelmed in excessive sorrow, I think, to imply the opposite is what Paul has in mind. That they would be relieved and made glad. Number two, Satan's defeat. You see it there, verse 11. Paul has exhorted this forgiveness. He assures them in verse 10 that he also forgives the person. He joins them with, he joins with them in the extension of that pardon. And verse 11, why? So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Recall that church in 1932 who had had his doors barred for two months. And on the first Sunday where they were to meet again in Sunday school, met together and almost immediately at the reading of Scripture, broke out into a riot. Two people killed, seven people wounded. The secular authorities taking the keys and locking the church. Satan's devices were in full effect. His luring them into argument. His luring them into suspicion and, and hard attitudes and censorious thoughts. His tempting them with power. We are not ignorant of his devices. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He is the father of lies. And he very much would love for that that work of his to, to show up and be effective in this most delicate of moments in the life of the Christian church. Few things will be more tender in the life of your church than trying to both express love and correction at a point in a person's life where they're most vulnerable to their own hearts and the deception of their own hearts and most vulnerable to the world and the devil. Few moments are as tender and sensitive as that. And the tempter prowls about, looking for whom he may devour. But he's defeated every time the gospel is reaffirmed in the life of the church and and reaffirmed in the reception of the repentant believer. He He is outwitted himself, for Christ is wiser still. We are not blinded. We are not overcome. We are not outwitted. 
We're armed with the word of God and armed with the heart of Christ. He keeps us. He protects us. We stand in the victory he has purchased for us. And we triumph and display that victory every time we obey his word and discipline with the right heart. And every time we receive again the repentant with abundant forgiveness. The enemy who says there is no grace with God and is no forgiveness for you, sinner, is outwitted when the people of God prove otherwise. May it be so in our churches. May Satan be defeated and may sinners find relief as we practice church discipline. Let's pray together. Father, your name is great in all the earth. There is no God like you, holy, beautiful, and true. There is no God beside you, always existing, always ruling. And there is no love like your love, at once sweet in the salvation of sinners, tender and tough, in the correction of the erring, redemptive and forgiving when a sinner repents. We long to see the multitudes come to you in saving faith by the preaching of your gospel. And we long to see your church beautified and purified and come to you freshly in the practice of discipline. Help us, O oh Lord. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.